Thank you, brothers. As you heard from in that prayer, we've already had five prayers this morning. And thank you, brothers. Thank you, Daniel, for your confident and enthusiastic prayer. Thank you, Zach. Perfect. We did not collaborate. If you were to think about individual words, <clears throat> did you use the word rock in the back room? It's inappropriate. That's my word today. <laughs> there was so much collaboration. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Newell gets up and wants to thank the Lord for the Bible because I left it out. Why did I leave it out? Because the Lord took it out of my mind. I always, I always thank the Lord for His Spirit and His Word. Always they go together. But it was just His Spirit because Newell had the Word. And then Zach had it in, in spades. Uh, praise the Lord for that. I hope that all of you at home by live stream were able to see all the coordination of con content that uh, we had this morning already. Let's turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Amen. Deuteronomy 32. Any of you that know me know that I love the covenants of God, and I have loved them since I was a late teenager and was first exposed to them, and I'll tell you where, in John Gill's Body of Divinity. John Gill was a Baptist pastor in London, England, lived to be about 71 years of age. In the late 1600s and the early 1700s, and it was said of him, if you want to say, if you want to make a statement in London, England at that time of something that was certain, you would say as certain as John Gill is in his office. And the man would start every day with a pound of chocolate, but that's not why I picked on John Gill at this particular moment. He would start every day with a pound of chocolate, probably dark chocolate back in those days. Nestle's hadn't come around quite yet. But he wrote a body of divinity at the end of his life. He, he wrote some things earlier in his life when he was young that were not nearly as good as at the end of his life. His commentary on the scriptures is not worth very much at all. <clears throat> and it's a massive, massive set, but there's hardly any value in it. It was written when he was young. He covered every verse of the Bible. <clears throat> then he wrote The Cause of God and Truth, defending Calvinism against Arminianism. And then at the end of his life, he put it all together in his systematic theology called The Body of Divinity. And just go look up the word covenant in the table of contents at the beginning of it and read some of those chapters about covenants, and you will see an angle on our salvation that is not commonly taught anymore mm -hmm. and has not written and been written about by very many. And he wrote about it extensively because he believed in several things that most theologians didn't, and that is eternal justification. Right. You know, there is so much emphasis of sola fide that we are justified by faith because of a misunderstanding of Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 and Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3 that they forget that we were justified in eternity. And when we sing the song, "'Twas with an everlasting love that the elect lay on Jesus Christ's bosom and were embraced by Him, that is our eternal union in Christ. That's a covenant relationship. Amen. When He wrote our names in the book of life, that's a covenant relationship. Right. God committed Himself to a covenant that He would perform certain things that He specified and revealed to the universe. He promised eternal life before the world began. That's part of His covenant commitment. What was I supposed to preach this morning? Oh, yeah, Deuteronomy 32. I'm sharing with you, I love the covenants. And as of Thursday and Friday especially Thursday, I was feasting on them again for you. Amen. But they dried up, and it's the way the Lord has always dealt with me. A subject will simply dry up and be boring. 
and the covenants of God are not boring to me, but they became dry and dead and dull. But Deuteronomy 32 didn't, and that's how he speaks to me. He, he lit it up, Amen. and I wanted Deuteronomy 32. So that's what you get today. Amen. <clears throat> I, I could turn to a different passage of Scripture and go right off on covenants. Because I, the, the everlasting covenant is a wonderful thing. And you've heard me say a hundred times in my ministry, or two hundred times, although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation, all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Second right. Samuel 23, 5, the last words of David, or the closing words of Paul in Hebrews, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. I love the covenants, but the Lord took them away. So this is what you get, and let's get down to business because we have a lot of business to do. The song of Moses. Is it the first song of Moses or the last song of Moses? It's the last song. It's the second song of Moses. This is just before he died. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 30. Moses spake in the ears of the, all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. You should love the book of Deuteronomy. Some of you love Genesis because it is simple and gives the history of the world for the first 2,500 years almost. But Deuteronomy is the one that has the most instruction for us, right. and it's all given at the very end of Moses' life. Amen. Just keep that in perspective. It's all given at the very end of his life. He recounts the history of what God had done with them, and he lays out the blessings and the curses depending on how they're going to obey him and follow him. And so verse 30 of chapter 31 tells us that Moses is about to commence a song. And then if we come over to the end of chapter 32, and we look at verse 44, and Moses came and spake all the words of this song, so we know where the song is. It's in verses 1 through 43. In the ears of the people, he and Hashiah, the son of Nun. That's Joshua and one of his seven names in the Bible. Whenever you get confused or someone tries to accuse you of having a contradiction in the Bible... And because of two different names, well, Joshua had seven. And embrace every one of them because they have meaning. Because as time went on, the name of Joshua became more meaningful. Because it's the name of our Lord. It's Jesus when it comes from Hebrew into Greek, and it means Jehovah is salvation. It's a great name. And you can find its full version some places, Jehoshua, so that you can see the Jehovah at the front end of it, the Shua at the end of it, for Jehovah saves. A few reminders about the song of Moses and about Moses. God revealed himself more to Moses than other men. From the burning bush, do you remember? I am that I am. When they ask you who sent you, you tell them my name is I am that I am, and this is my memorial to all generations. I was not known by Jehovah like I have been known to you as Jehovah. This is chapter 6 of Exodus. I was known as Lord God Almighty. So remember that about Moses. God and Moses had a face-to-face relationship unlike others. Joshua knew about that face-to-face relationship, and he wanted it. So when Moses would be in that tabernacle getting up close and personal with the Lord, and I mean that with all due reverence and great joy and excitement, that our God will come down and make himself known to an individual. It doesn't matter whether you're a boy or a girl. He doesn't care. Do you want verses on that? He can come down and meet with any one of you. 
and you should go seeking his face. It doesn't matter whether you're a boy or a girl. There is neither male nor female in Jesus Christ. And Joshua would stand back and watch that, and we read about it in Exodus chapter 33, that when Moses left the tabernacle and went back in the congregation, Joshua said, no, no, I'm not going to follow him today. I want to hang around here and see if I can get some of that FaceTime. Right. And he didn't mean a nap. He meant time with the Lord. Right. Remember that about Moses. Moses, uh, let, me, let me go further with that one. If you read Numbers chapter 12, you're going to find out that God had a problem with Aaron's brother and his sister because Aaron's brother and his sister thought they were special and they shouldn't have thought that. Aaron wasn't special when compared to Moses. And Miriam certainly wasn't special when compared to Moses. They were, both, they were priest and a prophetess. And they had their roles before God. But Numbers chapter 12 is about Miriam getting leprosy. And Miriam got leprosy because she dared question her brother Moses. Right. And though Moses begged for her, the Lord said, listen, if she'd spit in her father's face, I'd put her out of the camp for a week. So send her out because she shouldn't have opened her mouth. Moses, the meekest man that's ever served me, and I appear to him face to face, and I'll never do that with either of you two. You ought to read it. I will never do that with either of you two. I appear in visions and dreams, and you've got to get up in the morning and you're not really sure of what happened, and you have some vague concept that you try to write down of what I said to you, but with Moses, it's face to face because I have a personal relationship with him. So in a family, you don't need to worry about anybody else. Let them be Moses and Miriam. Let them be Miriam and Aaron, and you be the Moses. Right. You be the Moses. There's Miriam sitting over there. God considered Moses faithful in all his house. And he, he's compared to Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 3. Moses is one of the five great men because they were intercessors. And we're going to want to think about that as this intercessor unloads on them in his last words before he dies. God included Moses in the hall of faith for his great zeal and his great choices not to be raised in, in Pharaoh's household as Pharaoh's grandson. He chose not. He chose the, the reproach and the afflictions of the people of God because he saw something that most men don't see, and that's the future. Most men, most Christians are short-sighted, so they don't have the long-distance the long long vision of seeing the hope of eternal life. Right. But Moses saw all that, and so he gave up all the short-term blessings and the pleasures of sin for a season. Follow the Lord. That's, that's a little bit about Moses. Some general information about this song. Um... You know, in a song, there's similitudes used without a precise literal application. So don't try to make a precise literal application of every word in Deuteronomy 32 because it's a song. In a song, we use flowery words and metaphorical words to draw word pictures. And so Moses will do that by the inspiration of God. Like the Psalms and the Prophets, there's lots of similitudes. Like the Psalms and the Prophets, the person of the speaker or audience may change. God's going to be in the first person sometimes. Sometimes Moses is going to be talking about God, to God, about God, second, third person. It's going to jump all over the place, like it did in the book of Isaiah and like it does in the book of Psalms. Like the Psalms and the prophets, verb tenses may vary widely for past and future because he's looking at the character of Israel before and the character of Israel after, and he's giving a prophecy, not just a warning to the present generation, because the generation that was standing there listening to him was one of the best generations in the history of Israel. Right. 
These weren't the ones that died in the wilderness. These are the ones that survived the death of their parents in the wilderness. They were the ones 20 years of age and under, and they were a great faithful generation compared to most. They went in and took the land of Canaan. They crossed the Jordan River. They marched around Jericho. They took out 70 cities of the Canaanites with zeal. And even the two and a half tribes that stayed on the east side of the Jordan River were faithful. They went with their brethren. It was a, it was a good generation. And so you've got to keep that in mind because it's like the Psalms and the Prophets. We're looking at an overall character problem of the Jewish church. And we don't want a character problem. So we don't want to be like the verses that speak of them that way. Now Moses had two songs. Song number one is in Exodus chapter 15 at the shore of the Red Sea where there were waterlogged Egyptians around his feet, and Miriam took up her timbrel and, and began a dance. But that's called the Song of Moses, and it is that song that is referenced in Revelation chapter 15, that in heaven they sing the Song of Moses. And they don't sing the Song of Moses word for word, like it is in Exodus 15, because there's no Red Sea in heaven. But they sing about the great triumphant God, because instead of destroying the Egyptians, he's destroying the beast and all of his kingdom, and all those that follow him and took the mark of the beast. In Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Moses also wrote the 90th Psalm, if we're to trust the Jewish scribes, notation there. These are the last words of Moses, like David's last words. I love David's last words. How does a man like David, who sinned in his life, how does he die? Well, he just confesses, my house be, although my house be not so with God, he confesses that his family's a mess. Yet God hath made with me an everlasting covenant. Well, how does this preacher die? You see, what, look at the death. And it's pretty negative, so get ready, get ready for this particular part of it. Look at uh, 30. Well, you can look, let's look at the end of the song. 3248. Moses spake unto Moses that self same day, saying, 3249, get thee up into this mountain, Abiram, unto Mount Nebo which is in the land of Moab that is over against Jericho, and behold, the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel for a possession, and die in the mount, whither thou goest up. It's time for you to die. So these are the last words of Moses. But I want you to come to the last part of chapter 31. And look at, look at Moses and how he talks. Verse 27, For I know thy rebellion. He is speaking to that generation of Jews. I know thy rebellion and thy stiff neck. Behold, while I am yet alive with you this day, ye have been rebellious against the Lord, and how much more after my death? They hadn't been perfect, but notice what he's saying. What's it going to be like when I die, and I can't keep you under control? Gather unto me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears, and call heaven and earth to record against them. For I know that after my death, look at this, I'm about to die, and I'm scared. Because of your rebellious heart that you've shown already, I know that after my death ye will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days, because ye will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. And Moses spake all of that in the words of the congregation, and then he gave him a song. I hope that you will look at a passage like that and understand that is how a sincere minister treats his people. That is how a sincere minister thinks. He thinks pessimistically, not optimistically. He is not like Robert Schuller. Did you all look in the mirror this morning and say, beautiful, 
beautiful. You know, that's Robert Schuller. That's the feel-good, self-esteem, self-love religion of this nation. But not Moses. I want you to see Moses. Because all he cares about is that the church will be faithful to God and love God and serve Him all the days of their lives. But he's also a prophet, and so he knows what's going to happen. And you, you know what's going to happen, that uh, after he died and after Joshua died and the elders that outlived Joshua, there they went. And you've got the book of Judges. Terrible book of Judges, as it describes their rebellion and chasing after other gods. But this, this is how a man that loves his people talks to them. I know the rebellion in your hearts. I know the temptations. I know the difficulties. I know the challenges. And I'm not going to be around to remind you. And you're going to go running off after other gods. And so we have a little bit about Moses there. Five times is this chapter in the New Testament. Five times. How can you benefit by this chapter in the Bible, Brother Newell already shared some of those benefits with you by looking to Moses' exhortation after he closed out the song in verses 46 and 47, there toward the end. You should only fear this God. You don't need to be afraid of anything else. There's no political threat or danger. God's in charge. He's our king and he's our leader. He's our ruler. He's our commander. There is no danger. He is in charge. So you should only fear this God. Remember his goodness, and thus the duty you owe him. Because of his goodness to us, we owe him our praise, we owe him our obedience, because he's been so good to us. Amen. Goodness creates an obligation of responsibility. To whom much is given shall much be required. And he has given us much, and he gave them much, and he's going to bring that up in this song. You should only fear this God, because he's the only one that can and will punish you, even his own people, even his own church, when they sin against him. So we're going to get a reminder and a warning for us to remember and to requite. We're going to get a reminder that we should remember so that we can requite him what we owe him and remember what he's done for us. If you read it last evening, then you're familiar enough with it. And other times that we have looked at it, especially pulling out single verses or single paragraphs in it, if you look at it right now with your eyes, I'll tell you it's brief division, which you can get later from the outline. But in verses 1 through 3, we have an introduction. In verse 4, we have the perfect description of Jehovah. In verses 5 and 6, the rebellion of Israel is given. Verses 7 through 14 are God's goodness to Israel that they should have remembered. Verses 15 through 18 is their rebellion. 19 through 25 is God's vengeance. 26 through 38 are the limits of his vengeance, to not utterly destroy them. And verses 39 through 43 is that they could rejoice because he was going to come and deliver them and destroy their enemies. And at that point, at that point, the Gentiles should jump in as well because they are identified in verse 43. And verse 43 is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15 and verse 10 about Jews and Gentiles worshiping together in the church at Rome and celebrating because of that, that verse because God is the God of both of them, and Jesus Christ took out the middle wall of partition and put us together with them. And so that last glorious verse is in Romans 15 and verse 10. Here we go. The introduction of the song in verses 1 through 3. 
Deuteronomy 32, the last song of Moses before he died in Mount Nebo was buried by the Lord and his spirit was gathered to his people. This is what this preacher, this is what this one of the five great men, this is what this intercessor wanted to lay on his people before he left. Now, the entire book of Deuteronomy might have been given this day, or the great majority of the book of Deuteronomy may have been given this day. So in the words that Newell read to you from verses 46 and 47, when it refers to his law, it's more than the song, because it's the chapters as well that come before the song. The song was just his climax before he died, and explaining to them, there's a blessing in verse 33, but it's very, chapter 33, but it's very short. So, give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass, because I will publish the name of the Lord. Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. Amen. That's his introduction. In verse 1, the universal appeals are to tell you how solemn of an occasion this is and how serious the words are. The universal appears, appeals to his audience shows that the source is from God because he's calling God, heaven and earth to record for what he's about to say. And it tells all the value for all the creatures. All creatures should humble themselves before the great creator God of the universe and obey him, love him, adore him, and never replace him, never be unmindful of him, and never forget his great and glorious works. He puts Israel to sober reflection by the importance of the song. He says in verse 2, doctrine is good. Do you all believe that? Yeah. Doctrine is good. Doctrine is better than programs, as most churches measure themselves by their programs. A family goes to church, the first thing they want to know is what programs do you have? Well, they should be asking, what doctrine do you teach here? Because doctrine is good. Doctrine is wonderful. And Moses here calls it my doctrine I'm about to lay on you. And he describes it four different ways in agricultural terms of the benefit of doctrine. It's going to drop like the rain. It doesn't say flood like the rain. It's drop like the rain. We love rain that drops, not washes. We love rain that, rain that drops. My speech shall distill as the dew. We love that form of moisture as well. The small rain upon the tender herb, not the large and hard rain. And the showers, we love showers as well, upon the grass. All, four, four descriptions that doctrine is good. This isn't complicated. My doctrine that I'm about to give you will nourish you. It will make you great. It will help you grow if you'll humble yourself to it. What I have in store for you is for your good. It's not for your pain. It's for your good. It is for your warning, and it is for your sobriety. But my doctrine. Doctrine means teaching and lessons. Doctrine's not a complicated word. Doctrine just means teaching and lessons or a body of knowledge. And Moses intended to give a body of knowledge to these people that would benefit and prosper them. And he used four metaphors to do it. Rather than resent harsh or severe content and warnings, we instead should embrace them as being necessary for our souls. Amen. The Word of God is profitable for doctrine. Oh yeah, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So I'm going to give you a body of knowledge. This is Paul to Timothy. To New Testament churches, I'm going to give you a body of knowledge. It is going to correct your hearers. It's going to reprove your hearers. And then it will instruct them on how they ought to live. 
Well, that's just a whole lot of toe-stepping. Toe? Yes, it is. Embrace it. Thank the Lord for it. Now, my doctrine is good, and it's nurturing, and it's appropriate, because I will publish the name of the Lord. If you look at the doctrine I'm about to give you, Moses is saying, it's going to exalt God. I will publish God's name. I'm not going to publish yours. I'm not going to flatter and praise you. I'm going to flatter and praise the Lord. This is Moses speaking to Israel, and it's every honest pastor speaking to their congregation. The one that I need to publish is the Lord. We don't need to publish ourselves. We don't want to publish the pulpit. We don't want to publish the pastor. We don't want to publish ourselves as being important. We want to publish the name of God. Because, explains why my doctrine is going to be nutritious and nurturing and helpful for you. Because I'm going to publish God's name. I'm going to lift him up. And if you will allow me to lift him up to you, it will do all the necessary correction of your poor character so that you can realize his blessings in your life. And because I'm going to publish the name of the Lord, what should your reaction be? Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. Why don't you join in with me right now that while I publish the great name of God, you are shouting, Amen. 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 <laughs> yes. Oh, some one of your little children. I, don't, I can't even remember who it was. A small child. A week ago, I explained to them why Paul did not like tongues being spoken in a New Testament church because then the people wouldn't know when to say amen. Because if somebody's up there babbling away in Russian, the rest of the congregation that only knew Greek or only knew Latin wouldn't know when to say amen. And if the whole congregation was babbling in 40 languages at once, which the Bible never allowed, but which goes on in some charismatic and Pentecostal churches, they wouldn't know when to say amen. So this is pastor and people working together. I'm going to publish the name of the Lord. I'm going to lift God up. And if you want to be right with him to get started as we go into the content of this chapter, why don't you participate as well by ascribing greatness to our God right along with me? Oh, much more could be said, but uh, not today. Verse 4 is the next section, the perfection of Jehovah. This is a verse that is well known by Bible readers as a standalone, independent, wonderful description of God. One verse. Verse 4. He is the rock. And notice your King James Bible. It's got a capital There are nine occurrences of rock. Two of them are stones in the earth in this chapter. Two of them have a small r because it's Israel putting their trust in other gods who only get a small r. They don't even deserve that, so the Lord is merciful to his enemies. Then there are five occurrences of rock with a capital R. Do we know about a rock that they didn't even know about? We do. The rock, Christ Jesus. Do we know more? The gospel of Christ Jesus. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But that's not for... We just have more that we know about God the rock. Look at this fourth verse. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways 
our judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Amen. Seven descriptions of Jehovah. Now, here's one little verse that you could memorize that describes God. He is the rock. We sang in the back room this morning, Psalm 18, about David describing God, describing God as his rock. You know, verse 4 deserves a sermon itself. It has seven descriptions of the character of God. He is the rock. He never changes. He is totally stable, and you can plant anything on him, and it will never be moved. And his work is perfect. Everything he does is perfect. You should never question it or complain about it. All his ways are judgment. That means they make good sense. They're fair and they're equitable, and he never mistreats a single person. Not all of his ways are judgment in the way of punishment, because that's not true at all about God. But all his ways are, are, are right and just and fair and equitable and perfect for the situation. Amen. You say, well, there's some, that's, there's some overlap because you already had the word perfect. Of course there's overlap. All of God's attributes overlap each other for the most part until you pick two opposing ones like love and holiness. But see, in God, his love is always of holiness and his holiness allows love if it's a holy object. That's how they work together. But what a verse we have here in verse 4. And so this is how the preacher begins his sermon or begins, begins his song by pointing out what I'm about to describe about God you're not going to like. But he's always right and his ways are perfect and he's just and right and his ways are all judgment. So he gets that out of the way because what he's about to say is trouble is coming, Israel, for your bad character. What a verse. All his ways are judgment. A God of truth without iniquity, just and right is he. Don't ever say this shouldn't have happened. You're saying God is wrong. Don't ever say anything like that. Don't ever say I don't understand because whatever God did is truth and it's without iniquity. How could God do this? Don't say it. He's without iniquity. You know, Billy Graham after 9-11, I don't understand. I don't know, why did he say that? We deserve far worse than 9-11 because we're sinners and we're a sinful nation. And he never does anything wrong. We just understand it as him working his perfectly holy will out. Right. And all of his ways are right, including anything he does to America. Amen. I don't care how it happened in America. I don't care if it was manufactured in the CIA lab in Langley, Virginia. I don't care if special forces carried it out. None of that makes a hill of beans worth of difference. It does not make one bit of difference. And anybody that wastes any of their time on any of that is wasting their time on something that's totally profitless. All that matters is God did it. Amen. And his ways are right and perfect, just judgment and holy and without iniquity. Amen. He is the rock with a capital R. Love your Bibles. Amen. Let's go to the next section, verses 5 and 6, the rebellion of Israel. They have corrupted themselves. Oh, no! No, how can you have a song with the wonderful verses that we've had so far? Verses 1 through 3, introducing it. Verse 4, describing the perfect character of God. They have corrupted themselves. God didn't corrupt them. They chose to corrupt. They chose to be rebellious. And so you should cry out, no! And we should cry that out anytime we see anyone in our church slipping away from steadfast devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom of the New Testament. They have corrupted themselves. 
Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? Look at those questions. Three question marks in verse 6 after three declarations in verse 5 because they were bad in verse 5 and Moses the prophet is nailing them for their poor character and then he asks, how in the world could you do that? And that's why I said, no! We cannot let it happen to us. We need to be faithful to our God because of all he's done to us. Because when we look at verse 6, has God made us? Has God established us? As individuals, as Christians, as a church, has he not bought us with the precious blood of Christ? Now he bought them with something far less precious, and that was the death of the Egyptians. But this is, the, this is not the blood of Christ in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 6, but it is for us from the New Testament. O foolish people and unwise, do ye thus requite the Lord? You know, the Bible tells us that we are supposed to requite our parents for all they did for us when we were helpless babes in diapers. 1 Timothy 5.4 says that we are to requite our parents when they are old and they need help because of what they did for us when we were young and we needed the help. Right. So it's to repay kindness shown. And so Israel, the, Moses is asking, do ye thus? Is this how you're going to repay God? You're going to corrupt yourselves and you're not going to have the spot of his children? You're not going to have the character and conduct of his children? You're going to be a perverse and crooked generation? Why? So we should ask that. And let's never let it happen. God's been our father. He has bought us by the precious death of his own son. He's made us. We haven't made ourselves. He's made us. Right. I can't believe what he made out of me. And you may not think it very much, but you didn't know the old me. And maybe you do. <laughs> but the old me made to the new me is a tremendous thing. And every one of you should be saying the same thing and saying amen instead of just looking at me like I'm a pariah. Because it's true of all of us. <laughs> I, could, I could go right down through this congregation and pop out a few things about most of you. From your past, the Lord's been glorious. Amen. Glorious. Amen. And, and we're, we're in verse 6. But let's never repay the Lord in such a way of, as having sinful character and conduct as verse 5 describes. Now this, this is hard language to the audience that's hearing him. Because the audience that's hearing him is one of the best generations of the nation because he got rid of all the bad element by killing off their parents. These are under 20 that were ready to go in and obey. They were not willing, they, were, they weren't afraid of the Anakims. They were willing to go take on the Anakims. They weren't like that previous generation. It had been 470 years since God had promised to Abraham. God had picked Abraham, brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. It's been 470 years. How do we know that? Because Galatians tells us it was 430 years to Mount Sinai. From the promise to Abraham to Mount Sinai is 430 years so that the law could not, did not disannul the promise because the promise was made first. Well, that's part of the covenant. Why am I telling you that now? 430 years. Galatians 3 tells us 430. How do we know that we get to add 40? Because they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. So he's looking back to Abraham and the patriarchs in some senses. He's looking back to that evil generation that, he, that God killed in the wilderness. He's looking forward to this generation and their children because he knows that they're going to be bad. As I've shown you from chapter 31, he knows that, and we know it because we know that we have the book of Judges, which they didn't have. 
and even Moses didn't have, but Moses being a prophet and God meeting with him face to face had told him a little bit about what Judges was going to be like. Their spot is their character and conduct. Let me tell you something. I want you to know that the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, when describing the reprobates in the church, in the churches that he was addressing, he uses two parts of these verses. He uses bought out of verse 6 to aggravate the sinfulness of those reprobates because they were denying the very God of Israel that had bought them out of Egypt. I'm not going there because it's, it'll take too much time. It's a wonderful way to understand 2 Peter 2.1, and it is the right way to understand 2 Peter 2.1. And then this word spot is they are spots in your feasts of charity because they have the wrong character. They don't have the character of the children of God, but they're feasting right along with you. And so Peter uses the word, a word out of verse 5 and a word out of verse 6. And if, young men, remember what I just told you. I just gave you an explanation of 2 Peter 2, 1, by which you can confound any Arminian. Because they think 2 Peter 2, 1, even denying the Lord that bought them, which is being spoken of reprobates, means that Jesus died even for reprobates because they can only think of the word bought in the sense of the blood of Jesus Christ. When in fact, it's a Jewish tradition made by Moses in this song that we use the word bought for coming out of Egypt, and then it's used about 50 ways that 50 times in the Old Testament by the use of the word purchase, redemption, and ransom. I will give Egypt for thy... Oh yeah. Okay, so you know that. So much more could be said. Let's never, let's never have the Lord asking questions like this about us. We want to be like the sweet psalmist of Israel in heaven. We want to be known as the ones loving him, praising him, and obeying him. Verses 7 through 14. Remember the days of old. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee. Thy elders, and they will tell thee. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance... When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in the desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings, so the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. He made him ride in the high places of the earth, that he might eat the increase of the fields. And he made him to suck honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock, butter of kine, and milk of sheep, and fat of lambs, and rams of the breed of Bashan, and goats, with the fat of kidneys of wheat, and thou didst drink the pure blood of the grape. Amen and amen. amen. This is the next section of God's goodness. So he introduced that they were a crooked and perverse generation in two verses and told them that was totally wrong based on the way he had treated them. And then he elaborates on how he had treated them and it should be remembered how he had treated them like it should be remembered how he has treated us. Remember the, back to verse 7, remember the days of old. 
Consider the years of many generations. Ask, I'm not going to, I can't preach this two different ways, equally extensive. If I were to preach this from a purely Jewish Israel standpoint, it's going to take me four sermons that way. But if, and if I preach it, it's Thanksgiving week in America. That's going to take me two sermons anyway to preach it that way. So I've got to cheat on both sides. I hope you understand that. And so right now, I don't really care about Israel. I care about us. And I want us to remember the days of old and to consider the years of many generations. They had their things to remember. You know, they could think back about what God did for Abraham, what God did for Isaac, what God did for Jacob, what God did for Joseph down in... Oh, yes. They had a lot of things to think about, but we have a lot of things to think about. Oh, yes. Christopher Columbus. Yeah, how did he get here? Why did he get here? Who funded him getting here? How easy was it for him to get here? You know, we have America. And we're blessed. I love the... Do you hear me refer... We're going to give thanks to God in, in the second service for having two ponds on both sides of this, this continent. Do you, do you like those ponds? Yeah. See, Europe's always been fighting. Let them fight. Let them destroy each other. Middle East has always been fighting. Let them fight. Let them destroy each other. Asia's always been fighting. Let them fight. Let them destroy each other. But here we are. We got a, we got a pond called the Atlantic Pond. And we got a pond called the Pacific Pond. Do you know why I'm telling you all that? Because of verse 8. When the Most High divided the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. And we know that's true. You know there's no mention in the Bible of America. God doesn't care about America. To, be ju to, to justify any inclusion in the Bible. There's no mention of China. There's no mention of Brazil in the Bible because it's all focused on a little tiny nation called Israel right there at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, and the only nations that ever got mentioned are the ones that came in contact with his people. Because he said, for the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Are you with me on these three verses? To see what, how they apply to the Jews. But now we need to remember the days of old and consider the years of many generations and ask our fathers and grandfathers and uncles, and they will tell thee. And I gave you some of that to read about the Israelites from Psalm 74, 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106. And we have, a hist we have histories in the Psalms given to us by David. Two things are needed. You children should ask, what has God ever done for us or America? And you, you fathers and uncles and grandfathers should be able to show and tell. Right. Can you see show and tell? He will show thee, they will tell thee. That's show and tell. So show and tell God's goodness to us and the generations that make us. I thank God for saving my grandfather out of spiritism. And I thank God that a few months ago I put him in this pulpit for the men and let him tell that story in some detail because that is remembering the days of old and considering the years of many generations. And we can go back farther. Why are we here in America? What happened to get us here in America. And every single one of you, no matter how you made it to America, made it to America by the Lord arranging the circumstances for you to be here. Right. There were immigrants at various times from various nations. You know, I look in one direction and we have Eastern European. I look in another direction, we just have Eastern. But you know, we all got here. Yeah. 
And our, and our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents made decisions in their lives that brought about the arrangement of it for us, even though they didn't know what they were doing and they weren't doing it for us in particular, but they were doing it because God was directing them. And so we should give God thanks Amen. that we are in this nation and to praise Him for all of His goodness toward us. When we count blessings, it will surprise us what God has done. According to a song that we sing, it will also convict us. Psalm 145. Does Psalm 145 fit this verse? Show and tell? All those verbs in the first 11 verses, all the verbs about communicating, it's the most dense place in the entire Bible of using this glory. Oh, you did a perfect job. I'm, I can't add to it. I'm just trying to resurrect it in their memories. All those verbs about verbalizing it and telling it. And so it is here. Look what God did for America. Do you know how easy it was to take it over? The Indian Wars weren't all that difficult. It's pretty hard when you're shooting bent pieces of wood with chunks of stone on the end tied there with rawhide and you're facing guns. They had never seen a wheel in their lives. And here come wagons and locomotives and the rest and, and wheels. Just incredible. The Lord, the Lord gave us the nation. The Lord, because the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Why did God create North America? Before the foundation of the world. He was saving it for us. He was saving it for us. Everywhere else that I just mentioned has always had problems and they're always fighting each other. The French don't like the English, or haven't you figured that out yet? And neither of them like the Germans. They've always been fighting. Why don't you write Ante this afternoon and ask him if the Serbs and the Croats ever fight? We're so blessed. Where did America come from? Why has God blessed her so greatly for so long? Why has Bible Christianity been a greater part of this nation than any known nation? Do not forget why America is great. I preached it to you back in May. It's due to protecting the preaching and promoting the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. American history, the real history that is not given much anymore, is important for all people of any color, any nationality, any race that live here because it's your nation along with us. And we thank the Lord for it. Look at the natural resources that are here. Look at how easily it was possessed. Thank you, Lord. Amen. God shows favor to those loving him. And so the Lord's portion is his people. And Jacob's a lot of his inheritance. I've, I've read it to you four times now. Why should Christian Americans think of the exceptional divine blessings that are now here? They should look at God's favor on Israel nationally and religiously and see that we have it, but we have it more than they ever had it. Right. America began as nothing and turned into a mighty nation that ruled and rules the earth. America began as a pagan land, but has been for centuries the protector of the gospel. Bible publishers and missionaries have blasted the gospel throughout the world to the degree they knew it. The Japanese have been building their war machine for 20 years. They had an incredible, the Imperial Japanese Navy, credible Navy. The number of square miles that they controlled at the beginning of World War II was enormous. The number of people that they controlled, a small little piece of rock that sticks out of the Pacific that has no natural resources, so they had to go get them from other nations and they built a mighty war machine to go do that. And they dared touch us. Christian America. There is no religion in Japan. 
They're the most our religious group of people the world has ever seen. That's the world speaking about the Japanese. Not me speaking about the Japanese, the world about the Japanese. I enjoy certain things about Japan. This is one of the things I enjoy the most. When Yamamoto was pushed, being a senior, being a senior member of the War Council of the Japanese, and because he had been at Harvard, because he had seen the might of America, he told them that if you make an attack on that nation, you will wake a sleeping giant and they will bury you. They will bury us. And we did. Don't you ever forget that though they caught us by surprise, our aircraft carriers were not in dock at Pearl Harbor, and six months later was the Battle of Midway. Only six months later, we sent a large portion of their Navy to the bottom just six months later. And just four months later, we have such bravery and cunning and inventiveness in this nation by the will of God Amen. that Doolittle would take bombers off a makeshift bombers off a makeshift carrier and fly across the Pacific and bomb Japan. And though only a little damage was done, it shocked them that in four months we were bombing Tokyo. We bombed Tokyo. Do you think they ever bombed Washington, D.C.? Do you think they ever bombed San Fran? And they, got, they, they tucked tail and got out of Pearl Harbor because they were afraid of getting caught with their planes off the deck of their carriers and running out of fuel. But anyway, that's all, all that stuff is just glorious for the might that God gave America. We could fight battles on all fronts. We took care of the European theater that the European nations couldn't do. They were begging for us. They were crawling to our president, Roosevelt, to get us involved in the European war because they needed us. And they knew they couldn't defeat a 20-year buildup of the Japanese war machine, of the German war machine. Think about all these things. See, I love all these. I love to shout the praise of God for every one of them. I don't shout the praise of America. I shout the praise of God for making America great. And why did he make America great? Because compared to Germany, there isn't a Christian there. And America's full of Christians. And there aren't Christians in Japan. They're in America. There's not going to be a comparison when it comes to war until they live wickedly in the perilous times of the last days and give away the greatness. He found him in a desert land. That's where I was. I was the loneliest, most discouraged, depressed, frustrated, unhappy individual on the planet. Some of you were probably more or less there at some times in your life. He found, I, I'm going to look at the verse about myself. He found him in a desert land. I don't care about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right now. I want you to be thinking about you. Joshua, you, where were you at times in your life? Were you ever in a desert land in the waste howling wilderness? Did he find you? Did he lead you about? Did he instruct you? Did he keep you as the apple of his eye? All these things are true of your pastor. And they're true of our church. Where'd we come from? Because God found us in a waste howling wilderness. He found us in a desert land and he led us and he brought us here and he taught us and he's kept us as the apple of his eye for 40 years. Amen. As an eagle stirreth up her nest, Fluttereth over her young. Think about this bird, this mighty bird that is the symbol of our nation, that was the symbol of the Babylonians, that was the symbol of the Romans with its talons, with its beak, with its, with its seven-foot wingspan, with its diving power, its speed, its eyesight that's able to see a field mouse at a quarter of a mile up. It can see a field mouse in a field. Incredible. And so the Lord uses the eagle as an eagle stirreth up her nest 
fluttereth over her young. Forget that little sparrow that's got a wingspan of six inches. We've got six to seven feet. Fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings. When she kicks those little eaglets out of the nest and they start flapping and they're scared witless, she can glide down under them and bring them back to the nest. She can stroke them with the tip of her wing. You got to go to YouTube. We got more than they. Moses, Moses may have seen it, but Moses was a prophet and he was giving us an inspired song. An eagle took care of us. An eagle took care of you. How are you here? H. We're all here by, by this process. And we should, we should love this God. We should requite him and repay him for what he's done for us. Every single one of you are blessed. Don't think about the negative things in your life. That was part of your process and perfection. We all have negative things. But they're not negative. It's the Lord dealing with us and leading us and helping us. So the Lord alone did lead him in verse 12. And there was no strange God with him. And I want to make sure you understand this verse so that you will understand verse 39. When it says there was no strange God with him, that is not Israel, who is being considered by a singular male pronoun in the first clause. So the Lord alone did lead him. Now that him is Israel. The second him is God. There was no strange God with Jehovah, because we're going to run into this again. And how do you, you say, Pastor, how do you know that without verse 39? I know it by the first clause, by the word alone. So the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with God. So that whatever happened to Israel in good, and whatever happened to Israel in bad, it was all by Jehovah's choice and Jehovah's works. And they shouldn't put one bit of credence in a false God for their blessings or a false God for their chastening. It was all of the God of heaven, their heavenly father. He made him ride in the high places of the earth. This is God blessing Israel. God has blessed America. We have ridden on the high places of the earth. We have the greatest continent and the greatest nation with the greatest combination of resources and everything else that you want to consider for a nation that he might eat the increase of the fields. We are able to feed much of the world. And if we were to unleash all the American ability to produce, we would feed more of the world. And he made him to suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. It didn't matter that it was inferior pieces of ground they produced. They raised bees and honey on inferior ground. They raised olive trees on inferior ground, and it produced olive oil. But I, oh, when I think, when I read this verse, and I live in 2020, when I read this verse, I think of shale production of oil coming out of Texas, and we are, listen, brethren, this is fantastic development. In the last few years, particularly by the blessing of our pres- present president, that we provide all of our oil energy needs and we are a net exporter of oil, though we use an enormous portion of the entire earth's oil consumption. Because the Lord has helped us to pull oil out of the flinty rock and today it's been called shale production. It's a whole other aspect and angle on oil production in America. Praise the Lord. And and what do we get to eat in America? When you go to Uber Eats and you type in your address and it comes up with six or seven restaurants in your area, 
280. 280. Uber Eats or DoorDash or 864 to go. Oh, I can't remember. Grubhub? I didn't even know about that. Really? It's amazing. It's amazing. What does this verse have to do with it? Butter of kine. Do cows give butter? No. These are all figures of speech. So don't forget them as you read the verse. Butter of kine. So we've got cow butter. We've got milk of sheep. Fat of lambs. Lambs are fat because there's so much for them to eat. And rams are the breed of Bashan. We have the best breeds. And goats with the fat of kidneys of wheat. you got to know about a kidney that it's got the best surrounding of fat of any organ in your body, and it's called the fat of kidneys of wheat. The wheat is the most luscious, prosperous, nutritious wheat ever raised, and thou didst drink the pure blood of the grape. You had the best vintages. You had the best meat. You had the best grain products. You had the best food. You lived a luxurious life because God made it happen. He made us right upon the high place of the earth. This was true about Israel, but it is certainly true about America. Amen. And so we've made it through verse 14. There's more to go, but we'll do that after our break. Please stand with me.